Hey, one more thing before you go. How do you go from majoring in psychology to working in law enforcement to the pages of GQ to an actor on the silver screen? What happens when you take the step to advance your photography hobby to a career as a filmmaker? We're going to answer these questions and more. We're also going to find out how you too can make that jump as well we have, when we have a conversation with Indiana-born model and actor-turned-self-taught filmmaker Bo Roberts. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. My guest in this episode is Bo Roberts. He's an Indiana-born model, actor, turned self-taught filmmaker who was driven to filmmaking with his interest in psychology, believe it or not. But we're going to learn more about that here in a second. His journey on route included being a corrections officer, a CERT team member, a model in major magazines such as GQ and Cosmo and Esquire. He was named one of the top 50th sexiest men alive and then transitioned from modeling to acting, appearing in various projects, including Legendary Pictures, No Murrow's 300 Rise of the Empire, Fox's The Mindy Project, American Horror Story, and USA Network's Burn Notice, one of my favorites, actually. Most recently, in Liongate, Kevin Carraway's Change Chain of... Let me try that again. Change of Command with Michael J. White and Steve Austin. His director, cinematographer debut is the short film The Great Awakening, a thriller. Science fiction elements are included in that, currently streaming on Tubi TV. And welcome to the show, Bo. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You got a fantastic journey. Uh, well, actually, it's a very diverse, fantastic, unique journey going from where you uh, started in life to where you're at now. Yeah, I, I have. And to me... Uh, Currently, the journey has me behind the camera being a storyteller, but one thing I experience in my life is that things tend to change. So um, some people have uh, asked the question of, is this it? Is this what you're doing for the rest of your life? And I'm like, I'm, I don't know. Like right now is what I'm very passionate for. It's uh, very fulfilling and satisfying. But, you know, at, at one point in time, law enforcement, that's, definitely the career I wanted. And then um, acting, that's definitely the career I wanted. And storytelling, that's this is definitely the career I want. Um, and we have a, we have I, a lot in common. <laughs> we, we do, yeah. You also have a history in law enforcement as well. So um, yeah, I'm kind of interested to kind of delve into that with you. Yeah, I'm excited about this conversation. I think you know, you you, uh, you you have independent filmmaking behind your your belt on your belt as well as major films, and and then uh, onto independent filmmaking within your own rights uh, during the COVID uh, uh, era. We'll call it the COVID COVID pandemic era. <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah, you were able to accomplish some some really cool things. I think uh, we watched the movie. I think I told you we watched the movie that you made uh, over the weekend. My wife and I did, and we really enjoyed it very much. So I'm, ex I'm excited about talking about that as well. I like to start at the beginning, though. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in the bottom tip of Indiana. So more accurately, if, if you can pinpoint Louisville, Kentucky, then I'm just north of that. And stay there until I was about maybe 22, 23-ish. And then that's when I moved down to Florida. And um, yeah, that's when my life took a pretty drastic turn. So, would you have? What were your parents like? Uh, my parents are awesome. Um, I, it, the, the way I was raised, it's just this natural thought I have that I have never met somebody that I believe could outwork my parents. Um, my father, he's been a truck driver for thirty-six years. Um, my mom, she owns a truck driving company, and just watching kind of how she started that company and it was just staying, you know, all, all the day from like 8 a.m. until 1130 at night sometimes, uh, taking care of paperwork and just what she needed to do to get that company up and running. And then just talking to my dad and taking trips with him, uh, we would haul a lot of bourbon from Kentucky down to the border of Mexico and, um, yeah, taking that trip. And that's what he does, you know, for the 
five or six day trips and stuff. And um, for him, it's basic. He gets it and no big deal for me. I'm like, this is a hard run. Like, and you know, I, I would fly into town or uh, last time I took a trip with him, I think was about one, one year ago. And I really enjoyed it, but I definitely knew that, I'm not cut out for this to, to do this all day, every day. It takes a very spe special breed of person. So, um, yeah, my parents are just complete rock stars in, in their own way. It's great to have parents like that. I think family is the most important yeah. thing in life that we really need to value as a gift from that mm -hmm. perspective. Do you have any brothers, sisters? Nope. Uh, only child. Only child. Only child sometimes. Well, my wife's an only child. She loved it. <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, fun times, but my uh, uh, there is an extended families. Uh, I have uh, some stepbrothers and then cousins. I have I don't know, maybe six or seven or so. So um, yeah, like growing up, it was just me in that house. But two blocks away, I had cousins, and then um, what you know, cousins would come over about once a week or so. So it's yeah, um, I. I Grew up alone, but with a lot of family, you know, okay. just, you know, like five, yeah, like two blocks away. Yeah, it makes life good. Makes life good. Mm -hmm. Did you, uh, you go to university? I did. Uh, I went to a branch of Indiana. It was called IUS, or it's the Southeast uh, branch of it. And I went there and began majoring in psychology. And as I was doing that, yeah, that's also the period in my life when I, began a career in uh, law enforcement and you mentioned on the cert team and the way I would kind of make sense of the cert team to people that haven't heard of it is, uh, it's a correction officer that, uh, think of a uh, SWAT team member. Like you have a, a police officer that has their daily tasks, but when something requires a more special attention, that's when they have to suit up and go play with these advanced scenarios. So that's, what a cert team member does inside of a detainment facility. So when fights break out, uh, we have a combative uh, person coming into the jail, um, I don't know, suicide attempts, hostages. Those are all things that cannot fall under the uh, parameters of what a cert member might have to encounter. Yeah, for those that are listening and watching, it's the, uh, the correction, if I get this right, a correctional emergency response team. Mm-hmm. Which yep. is, again, like similar to a SWAT team, which works out really well, um, especially in high-profile incidents. And you guys come in and take care of uh, like riots and, you know, any disturbances or uprisings as well and those kind of things, right? Mm -hmm. Yep, we do. And, um, and, and for me, going from college, uh, like I was exposed to the DSM. It's essentially the Encyclopedia of Mental Disorders and uh, quirks and just a lot of, you know, kind of what makes people tick. And I was introduced to that in seventh grade in the library and it just kind of jumped out to me. So initially I thought I went into law enforcement to serve and protect and uh, all of the right reasons. And now, you know, that I'm 36, looking back at my younger mm -hmm. self, I can definitely see how um, that, human interaction and just kind of overall people watching um, that's always been of interest to me. So law enforcement to me is ground zero of human emotion. Uh, you don't have a no. filter from Instagram that you can hide behind. And, you know, like um, to me, I can feel like I was the grim reaper in corrections because I was the guy kind of comfortable in that scenario. So anytime an inmate's loved one passed away, I'm going to shift meeting and it would never be anybody else. It would be me that they say, okay, you have to uh, drag this person out into the hallway and break the news to them. And then, you know, just kind of sit in that space. And then, you know, at some point it's like, all right, well, I've got to put you back in your cell. And it's, yeah. So it's a, a very raw, um, you know, examination of kind of how people are, you know, just in life. Well, and I, you know, an analogy for that I think you'll agree with is that uh, law enforcement officers see all walks of life. We see the best people at their worst and the worst people at their worst. So you see yeah. all levels. 
and, and it, you know, you get to see what goes on behind closed doors that other people don't. And uh, unfortunately, and uh, within that realm, it gives you a new perspective on life itself and how um, valuable it is. 100%. And one, one way it's shifted a perspective, or not shifted it, but it just kind of uh, confirmed some things. So for me, uh, I was used to having to get hands-on with drunk people you know, five nights a week, and Friday and Saturday, now it jumps up to three to four times that, you know, I'm having to get, you know, hands-on with somebody. And, you know, that's them like just being drunk, nothing else in their system, just mm -hmm. drunk. Uh, but everybody that came into the jail, if they only had marijuana on them, like if they smoked a joint and got caught, they would walk in and say, you got me. Um, what's next? Are, are we doing prints, photos? Um, you know, what's, what's going on? So for me at a very young age, I'm like, I'm actually scarred for life from trying to handcuff a, a drunk person but that's legal and I've never had any issues from anybody only smoking pot. So I'm like, why is that illegal? But alcohol, you know, it's perfectly fine if you're 21. Liquid so courage. It, it, yeah. Yep. So it was interesting how that just kind of made me re re-examine some things. You're talking to a guy that uh, ran a DUI team for four years, uh, a part of my, as part of my career. So I totally dealt with where, uh, intoxicated individuals that only had one drink or always. two drinks, always, <laughs> never more than yeah. two, and uh, didn't think they did anything wrong whatsoever. They were just out enjoying dinner or enjoy having the company with them or whatever the case may be. They did not want to be arrested because they didn't feel they did anything wrong. So I understand. I empathize with you. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I have been there, done that, and... Uh, it's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult daily task at times. And a lot of people don't understand, especially when you deal with it over and over again, not just, you know, once or once in a blue moon or once a week or once a month when you're yeah. doing it on a consistent basis and do it every week after day. Yeah. yeah. Just kind of gets on you. Um, how long were you uh, in law enforcement? About three and a half years. Three and a half years. What, what mm -hmm. took you out of that? I went to spring break with a Oops. fraternity brother and we went down to not the MTV spring break. We did that the previous year, <laughs> but uh, uh, that particular year we went to see his uh, sister in a place called Sarasota. And that's where I went down, um, met some girl and, and um, you know, that, kind of took off and then I went back to Indiana and then one day I told my parents that hey I met someone in Florida and I'm going to move to uh, pursue that and see what comes of it so um, at that time yeah I was in law enforcement and used to compete in the whole uh, cage fighting stuff uh, I did that for about four years and I guess it turns out I'm a lover not a fighter and packed my bags, took off, went to Florida. And um, yeah, it started really making sense of what I wanted to do career wise from there, because I really appreciate and cherish every memory I have from law enforcement, but it wasn't really what, you know, something that I wanted to do long term, uh, the more I got into it. Yeah, you know, it, it's law enforcement is a, uh, it's a, I loved my job when I did it. I won't lie about that. And I wanted to continue it to go on up the ladder, uh, eventually retire as a chief, you know, with uh, just having to sit behind a desk and make decisions and collect a big paycheck and go home. But uh, I, I, I miss the street at times. But uh, when I look back on my career, you know, it was hard on me. It was hard on my family. It was hard on my kids. So sometimes, you know, we have to make a decision to kind of move forward and and it was best for us. And, you know, I think you moved on to something that uh, you you give back to people in so many ways. Um, so you're still contributing to society, but just in a kind of a different, unique way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the way I, I feel like I'm contributing to society is, um, well, just coming on and explaining my story on how um, 
from kindergarten until two years after high school, I went through intensive speech therapy and I had an opportunity to uh, take over at the family company and start running that and just kind of operate from inside of an, uh, an office typing on a computer and not really having to interact with people. But, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, I've had about 14 years of uh, speech therapy overall, I was like, mm, I'm going into acting. I'm going to stand on a mark, have a camera two feet away from me and just have people listen to everything I have to say. So for me, it's, uh, you know, that's a story that, you know, I would like some people to, to hear. So if they, you know, if they are being bullied or if they have these uh, insecure emotions, you know, I, I would like to say that, you know, my story could be a story of inspiration of those to say, you know, screw it. If, if these people don't like what you're doing, who cares? Then they're not your cheerleaders. That doesn't mean you should not pursue what you want to pursue in life just because of a few naysayers. Like if you're serious and if you're um, very intent on um, making something happen, you'll make sense of it and you will find a way to do it. So you went, you had a speech impediment and you've had a, a lot of help with overcoming that and moving forward in life. And for me, listening to this, it shows that uh, you, you put yourself in front of an audience it, it, via a camera uh, to show that you can overcome whatever stands in your way to achieve something in life that makes you happy and others happy. Mm -hmm. And actually, uh, one way that I really began working on my confidence is um, in New York. Um, once I went to Florida and was exposed to the whole acting world, though, I moved down to Florida and uh, the girl I was dating at the time, all of her friends said, oh, you should be a model. And I'm like, no, I'm, I, I'm a cage fighter. I'm not going to put on face cream for a living and whatever. So, um, but I had left law enforcement and the family truck driving company is back in Indiana. So what was I going to do for money? So uh, I had a, a few odd jobs, like keeping score at an adult basketball and uh, softball leagues and stuff like that. Um, and I was a good boy in law enforcement, putting a lot of money, you know, back into savings. Um, and um, so my savings that I saved up along with that uh, entry job, uh, keeping the score, that kind of kept me afloat. But I knew, okay, by this time next year, I need to have something established and going. So uh, I went out and started just trying to make sense of what called out to me. And I'm like, well, just, just get a job and make sense of it after that. Um, so I was fully trained, had all of the gear and showed up to work the first day of being a door to door Kirby vacuum cleaner salesman. And, uh, I, I saw this coworker, um, also parking. So I approached him and said, Hey, so it was explained to me that these people, they have reached out to Kirby and they want to test drive, uh, this vacuum and see if they are wanting to purchase it. So is that accurate? And the guy said, no, uh, they straight up lied to you. Uh, you're cold calling. It's very much door to door salesman and you're going to have the door slammed in your face a lot. So I went and I handed the gear back, uh, back to the employers said, thanks, but no things. I went home and it was, uh, talking to, uh, my girl at the time and said, all right, how do I get involved in this whole modeling stuff? Cause I'm not going to sell vacuums door to door. <laughs> so, um, that, that was really what pushed me into it. And then I had done a, a few photo shoots and, shot with a particular uh, photographer called Louis Raphael. And that, that was the first time that I really saw myself with professional lighting and, you know, kind of how he worked with me to uh, position me to make me look my best. That's when I was like, Oh damn, maybe, maybe I can model who knows. So then uh, I sent pictures off to agencies and, and it just kind of took off. And so I, um, 
fortunately kind of turned into a big fish in a small pond working kind of the Tampa Bay, Orlando area. And then uh, they pitched me down to South Beach, Miami, signed with a company called Next. And then um, uh, before I moved down to South Beach, that's when I was already exposed and had done a couple of short films and um, ha had a bit part on a movie that <laughs> was interesting because uh, I kind of hope nobody sees it, but I kind of hope everybody I have, I have sees one of those. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so it's like, oh, so this is this is where you really started off at. And uh, yeah, I'm like, it was, it, it was a trip. Um, but just doing that, I knew, okay, acting is a direction I'm, I want to go in. So when uh, South Beach, once it gets too hot to stand outside and not sweat through wardrobe, that's when everybody jumps on a plane, goes to uh, uh, Cape Town, South Africa, and does a lot of card, uh, card commercials. It's a very beautiful scenic area. Uh, for me, I passed on my offers and just went straight to Manhattan so I could continue work at modeling to pay bills and overhead, but also begin going to a, a proper acting school. So you're, the acting bug, did you, did you get it while you were modeling or, or had you had this thing? I think I told you before we started this, you know, as a cop, I always wanted to get into movies and filmmaking, but I was still a cop. <laughs> It's kind of, yeah. I, I'm starting to see a pattern between cops and getting into the entertainment industry when they're, <laughs> when they're done. Because um, I've had some other friends of mine that did the same thing, and now they're consultants on these, uh, some of these other uh, cop shows that are out there, which is pretty cool. Um, Joe Kenda, for example, when he did the, uh, he's got that huge series for the ID, um, where he's doing all these okay. homicides. Well, he ran out of his own homicides, so he's borrowing everybody else's homicides to do them, and everybody thinks it's him. He's probably going to get mad because I told that secret. Um, <laughs> secret sale. Yeah, when he ran out of his own homicides, he started pulling in other people's, and he got, he made a fortune doing that. But anyway, off track, sorry. Um, what got you, what bit you first? How did you get into acting? I mean, what really generated you towards wanting to be an actor uh i would say what really got me into wanting to uh go into acting i, I would <laughs> say it's, it's my interest in psychology so back to it law enforcement looking back you know i'm ground zero interacting in very intense situations and moments in uh, people's lives and once i was exposed to acting Initially, I thought, oh, you're just, you know, that that guy from the Midwest dreaming of, you know, being on TV one day. And um, but then once I really began reading a script and breaking it down and making sense of how, yeah, how would I be in this situation? Like, I really appreciated that because it uh, like it, it took my interest in psychology and turned it back on myself. Uh, so once I got into acting the technique that really called out to me is called uh, Stanislavski. And you have something called method acting where somebody walks around even offset being that character to get fully ingrained and in what they are wanting to uh, bring to that character on set. Stanislavski is more that you've already lived that character, that there is some situation in your life that is a very good proxy to put you in the, emotional ballpark of what the scene requires. So it's all about sensory and memory recalls. So it's not just, you know, like I was, um, had just turned 16, uh, way out in the country, grandma lived next door. And, um, all of a sudden phone rings, grandpa's having a heart attack. So I run over there and for like 20 minutes, you know, I'm trying to do anything to help, but then you, like I knew he died, uh, grandma's, uh, freaking out and I'm 16 years old. And, um, you know, so that's a very powerful, um, memory to pull from, but you don't just think about that. Like you have to think about, okay, when you went into grandma's house, how did it smell? Like we all know, that, okay, let's see, it's grandma. So the stove was on. So, and she just, finish, you know, cooking something. So it had that certain aroma to it. It was a very warm, inviting um, house to go into. And it was nice and hot. 
I was in the shower uh, uh, bathing, and this takes place in uh, the dead of winter. So I didn't even towel off. I just put a shirt on and ran barefooted through, through the snow. So I went from a hot shower to the cold weather back into the hot house of grandma's and um, you know, what, what texture did the chair have? So all of these, you know, very tiny, seemingly, you know, unimportant aspects of that memory, when you explore them, it, uh, people typically get very surprised at how much more it helps them, you know, kind of emotionally get back to that place. So for me, I, I feel like I've lived a pretty decent amount of life to where I have some scope. So Stanislavski is a, the tool I use to um, invoke certain, uh, yeah, memories. I, I know that's really great for actors. Um, you know, familiar with the, with the methodology that uh, Stanislavski uses. Uh, do you think that brought you, um, do you use that when you direct? When you, like, you... I, you Sorry. Uh, yeah. So I definitely use Stanislavski as a uh, filmmaker. And I say that I am a Stanislavski filmmaker. And um, a lot of that can be shown in the story I told with uh, my movie, The Great Awakening. Um, it, it was not very, you know, step by step on, okay, this is mm -hmm. happening. And, and for me, the um, prime example I use is the Great Awakening is my COVID movie without it being a COVID movie. Um, so uh, I have these thoughts that, okay, one movie is going to be your basic haunted house during lockdown. Uh, you don't want to stay because the house is haunted, but you can't leave because of COVID. Uh, there's a, a scary movie. So um, yeah. I, yeah, so I came up with these ideas about, um, okay, someone's making a movie about uh, contracting the virus or maybe the vaccine turns you into a monster or maybe lockdown is the mass enslavement of the human race. And I'm like, that's all very on the nose with COVID. Whereas for me, I wanted to kind of explore what, you know, what COVID or 2020 means to me. So uh, in 2020 COVID COVID is introduced um, mentions of lockdown, but then uh, lockdown is now being put into place and not just here, but like this country, Russia, China, uh, United Kingdom, like all over the world, we're going into lockdown. And now murder hornets are on the news for whatever reason. <laughs> and then yeah. uh, they and then they vanished. And then the, the CIA released over 10,000 documents confirming their interactions with UFOs. And that wasn't even trending on social media. Uh, we also had a very turbulent election year, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so it was just, you know, one haymaker after another. So for me, uh, my my best way to summarize 2020 with one word is uncertainty. So uncertainty became the common thread for my COVID movie. So the story is crafted in such a way it was executed on set. And then we polished it in post with the full intention of letting the viewer comprehend the story and what's happening. But the way I chose to deliver that message, something seems off and you're very, you don't know why things are happening the way that they are. And, and also in, in post the way that scenes were uh, uh, stitched uh, from this scene to that scene, it was very, intentional for the viewer to have no idea where the story was right. going to go. So to me, that's me putting the viewer back in the emotion of uncertainty, which to me represents 2020. Now, did you shoot that during 2020 during the COVID? No, I shot it last year. Um, oh, last year. So very, very early in last year. And then uh, spent the remainder of the year in post-production hell. I had an issue that, had me completely dead in the water for about a month to a month and a half. And I reached out to various people and um, the people that built the software program and the camera I shot it on was the, uh, the red Komodo and that camera just hit, come out. And uh, so I'm like, 
is there an issue with the footage? But then it hit me that, no, I, I've been working on the footage, but all of a sudden now it's not working. So I, I, I was just completely lost. And then that's when I reached out and because I, I had actually hired a couple uh, post-production people to do like a screen share and work with me through the problem and nobody could make sense of it. And it wasn't until I met uh, Casey Fitzgerald over at C4 Studios. It, he came on board. Uh, he loves to champion micro budget, low budget movies and, you know, really help them bring their vision to life in a professional way. Um, he, he had worked in the studio system uh, for some time. So he's used to these, you know, hundred million dollar projects that he's, you know, kind of crewed up on in that sense. But for him, he really wants to help out people that have this vision and have everything that they want to do. But there is a certain uh, professional aspect to it that many of them are lacking. So like for me, what, what he gave me is uh, this, um, you know, this, amazing gift to where um, I actually passed uh, quality control on my very first try. And it was my first time ever going through it. Know what's up. And I'm actually excited to see the uh, final product. But with that being said, it was just short films. Um, and, and during that time, that's when I, I was full time print modeling. And I had a camera, but only doing uh, street photography. So just going from casting to casting, I would have a, a camera with me and just kind of documenting, you know, interesting people doing interesting things and making sense of uh, photography. And then once I moved out to Los Angeles, that's when uh, my, my wife, she, you know, she basically t uh, gave me this challenge to where I was flying back to Indiana and she said, okay, I'm wanting you to go and I want you to shoot a short film and have it completely finished before you get home. And I said, um, with what gear? And she said, well, your camera shoots video. I know it's only 1080, but it shoots and it has a microphone built into it and use, you know, what light you have and just go shoot something. So I did came back and that's what really kind of started that fire. Uh, because going through the process and just seeing how, you know, I can change things around in post, but then actually being on set and framing, like I, I fell in love with the entire process. So uh, once that happened, it became this usual thing that every morning I would spend half an hour to an hour on YouTube, just watching tutorials. And, you know, for the stretch of three months, the only thing I would watch is, how to improve lighting and how to do it on my budget, which means at that uh, very starting stage, I didn't have anything. So like I went out to Home Depot and bought a uh, shop work light and I started with that. And so the first challenge was make sense of changing your white balance. So people don't look orange from the work light. So, you know, how do you do that? And then, um, after a couple of months, I would move into camera movement after a couple of months, go into post-production. And after about five years of, you know, watching half an hour to an hour uh, tutorials on YouTube. Um, and very importantly, uh, I've shot about 15 short films uh, during that span as well. So every project that I would do, I, I, I would say to myself, well, you just learned how to use light to make it look like it's midnight outside. So when you're shooting this short film with your friends at, you know, there's no budget, people are just wanting to uh, update their reel, put put, uh, put that into practice. Like uh, you studied it on the computer, now actually do it on set. And just kind of doing that, um, yeah, after five years, it you know, some of it stuck. Yes, it absolutely self-taught. Absolutely self-taught, that's pretty cool actually. I mean, you obviously had some <clears throat> some training and some visual opportunities when you went on other sets. And when you, while you were an actor in uh, some of the TV shows in the film that you were in, I'm sure that contributed to your experience as well, understanding the blocking and the the, the filming and the cinematography and the angles and the close-ups and the wide angles and 
everything else that's involved in framing a shot, because you did really well in this film. Um, everything came together really nicely, and I think that the atmosphere was created uh, in, in a very unique way, and uh, it presented what it was supposed to. So you, obviously being self-taught, you did really well. Thank you. And yeah, and back to me being on camera, um, uh, I can definitely pull and see how it's helped me as a uh, director and storyteller immensely to where uh, I've been that guy to where I walk yeah. on set and I'm shooting with my Brooklyn boys. So, you know, uh, I'm happy to see everybody on set and uh, we hang out for a few and then we go to work. And then I've also been that guy to where, you know, I went to an audition uh, book the job and now I'm showing up and I don't know anybody and it's like, all right, business, let's just get to it. So, you know, I, I've experienced it on each side and, you know, so it's like maybe if this actor is a, a bit newer and if they're tense, you, you know, just ways to kind of break the ice with them because I've been in, in that, uh, in, in their seat before. And also, you know, uh, talents having to worry about, okay, walk up stage. You're going to grab this. When this happens, you're going to come back here. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that they have to do, but it's vital that, you know, they hit the beats and deliver the message in a very specific way. So if they're not, uh, you know, I back to it, I've gone through that process to where you have a, a lot happening. So the way that I can convey my message and interact with talent, I view that as being a, um, like a, a strong, uh, um, a strong thing that I implement into my game. Um, and outside of that, like, yeah, you had mentioned being on these large scale productions and stuff. I definitely take notes every set I go on to, I'm like, Oh, what's that like for, why is this happening? What speed are they working at? What's the overall feeling of, okay, this is like a major studio, uh, production. What's the same as, low budget things I do and what's different and, you know, just kind of cherry pick what I like, what I don't like, what I want to see on my set and mm -hmm. what, you know, can't happen on my set. So, you know, back to that scope, I've kind of been all over the place. Well, and it's interesting because obviously even on big budgets, they, they worry about uh, budget and they worry about cost, mm -hmm. but especially with an independent film and when you're doing it yourself, every dollar and penny counts. So it's, you know, you can't, you don't always have the pleasure of taking 10 takes to make sure something comes out exactly right because money, you know, that's money, then that's time and money and, and so forth. So you, um, from that perspective, do you like it in front of the camera or behind the camera better? Uh, right now, I very much appreciate being behind the camera and acting. It was great for me to, uh, you know, once again, go through memories and kind of sip through it. And, you know, it, it really helped me deal with some issues that, you know, were, you know, kind of bad points in life and sad and stuff like that. Mm. Um, so I really appreciate what acting has to offer. Uh, but as a director, I've realized that as an actor, I'm just like, I show up and I'm doing my job, but I'm helping somebody tell their story. Mm. Whereas, what I'm doing today is I'm the one creating the story. I am the one, you know, that's telling the story. So, you know, I, I can really make sense of how every, you know, everybody I work with is a total collaborative effort, but it generates with this idea or this direction that I'm going to take a specific project in. Do you think from a perspective of uh, the difference between film and TV, because you've been on both sets, uh, do you think that the uh, there's a different uh, vibe between film and, and, and making TV? Yes, uh, I would say the vibe uh, does change going from film to TV. Whereas, um, and this is also with the uh, understanding that, you know, most TV is fully unionized. And it's like, if you go on to a soap opera, it's very much banker hours, like show up at 8 a.m., leave at five, and there is very much a method to the madness. Whereas if you go into filming, yeah, you're out on location here and there, and there's you have a lot more moving parts. And while um, TV shows also do this, 
it goes back to them being unionized, which the budget um, with the the permits that they can pull and, you know, just the, the base camp, the foundation on which they have the pull, um, you know, when you do drive an hour outside of Los Angeles, you know, it's a very different ball game to if it's like a low budget indie movie, whereas things get a lot more kind of rag, uh, ragtag. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting thing to where, um, you know, it's like, are people being kind of, um, uh, and definitely not saying that uh, union people are complacent in their job. Uh, but I, I'm just saying when you go into indie filmmaking, like you can tell that people are really trying to, you know, push and do something creatively because they don't have the, re the same resources as a, a union I show does. And the perfect example I, I found is something on YouTube called uh, professional photographer, cheap camera challenge. And if you, if you turn that on and watch it, you'll have these people that are like full-time working photographers and they're assigned a really low grade, just cheap camera. And then they're told you have to go out and shoot this area. And once that challenge is, is done, they always come back saying, this has helped me fall back in love with, you know, um, filmmaking or with uh, photography simply because I don't have access to all of the stuff that has made my job more comfortable. I don't have assistance. I don't have this type of light that would really accentuate the shot in the way I'm wanting it to do. So how can I pivot on the spot and how can I get creative in a way to, you know, still pull that shot off without having the, the tools that I would typically lean on to make it happen. So for me, that's, like the big difference I've noticed from indie filmmaking into, you know, big studio stuff is just kind of, uh, yeah. Indie filmmaking, like it's, it's scrapping. <laughs> yeah. This, this first, this film, the great awakening, was that your first introduction into above the line, below the line and budgeting and making sure that everything is like uh, where it's supposed to be. So, uh, the great awakening, it was my, first venture into shooting uh, more of a, a full length movie. Uh, you know, I've shot the 15 short films prior to that, but I've also worked as a crew member and worked as a crew member on, I would say about maybe 13 features. And for the longest time I was just handcuffed to that damn production truck, you know, having to right. show up and unload the, um, the tables and tents and set those up and then do the random stuff. And I, I was PA and key PA on a few things. And then uh, that put me up to being a second second. And I've done that on four features. And so I, I've definitely operated on, um, on sets before, but mm -hmm. yeah, going into the, the great awakening, it was, yeah, it was my first time to where, okay, I'm doing a, a project that's not just a short film, this is a three week shoot. So scheduling is very important. So, but you know, uh, working on as a crew member on other uh, projects, it really introduced me to scheduling and, you know, I see the call sheet and mm -hmm. uh, hear about changes that have, you know, happen at lunch that have to reflect on tomorrow. So that really helped kind of ease me into the, the chaos that, you know, can happen. A lot of on the job training. Yep. Long, very long much. job training. Uh, was it difficult to come up with a budget for that film? Nope. It was uh, very easy for me to come up with a budget for uh, for my movie because we didn't have one. So, yeah. So I started off doing the, the Hollywood version of uh, telling people about it and just started straight up lying and, you know, trying to sound big budget and like a, a blockbuster. And I told people I had um, $2,500 uh, to make this movie, but in reality, um, I only had like six, uh, 1600. So, um, you know, that, that look at uh, Qu uh, Quentin Tarantino um, with, uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember his name now. Did Desperado. Oh, are you kidding? Um, he did Desperado. I mean, he, uh, Rodriguez. No, wait a minute. I got to think. Yeah, um, Robert Rodriguez. Uh -huh. Robert Rodriguez. 
um, you know, they all started out with a shoestring budget and put everything on a credit card for about five to seven grand. And uh, they grew themselves into, well, look at Quentin Tarantino's, you know, empire as it is now. And he started off with nothing. Um, same thing. So, yeah, the only way the only way you can go from here is up, brother. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, only way it goes up. Um, when you, <coughs> excuse me, in dealing with uh, uh, your casting and everything else, uh, did you get, uh, how did you go about casting? Did you get uh, people you know? Did you get people that uh, you're familiar with or other actors or anything that you had uh, been familiar with? How did you get your cast together? So casting to me, it's, it's a very honest step that, um, that I take pride in. So yeah, um, there was no casting director. It was just me. And yeah, I went on and hit everywhere. I went on to actual uh, casting sites and, you know, posted there, but then I also posted on Craigslist. Um, I reached out to people I knew and just really put the word out and cast as wide of a net as possible. Um, but yeah, so some of the supporting characters are people that I know and people that I have worked with, uh, before, uh, but as far as the, the principal, uh, the lead and the co-lead, I actually was introduced to the lead of the movie, Ju Julia. Uh, um, I, I was actually introduced to her by, um, somebody that it was like a friend of a friend. And then she actually uh, Julia wanted to actually interview me for her podcast and then just trying to make sense of who am I going to cast. Um, that email came in and then she had her website, her info on it. And I noticed that she had a lot of um, stage uh, performance, which, you know, definitely jumped out to me because uh, I, I feel like we are in this time in history to where a lot of people care about how many people follow you on social media opposed to what kind of proper informal training you've had um, to, you know, to actually act and, you know, um, bring that craft uh, on screen. So um, I had her read. Yeah, she totally aced it just instantly. I'm like, yeah, the, the job is yours if you want it. And then uh, the, the one that would play the love interest or the role of, the boyfriend in the movie, uh, his name is Ryan Ruffing. And it was just, to me, it was just compliments all around simply because I had somebody that uh, was saying, yes, yes, yes. His manager was saying, yes, yes, yes. And this is for about two and a half months. And about a week and a half before we went to camera, all of a sudden the, that yes, yes, yes turned into a no sorry about, you know, no heads up or anything. So now I'm having to scramble and find somebody different. So I actually reached out to uh, an acting school I went to here in Los Angeles called AMAW and Anthony Mindell Acting Workshop. Um, yeah, reached out and then some people submitted and Ryan, he was one of them. And initially he just, you know, he popped, he hit the notes, has a great look about him. So then I set up a, uh, a Skype call and had both of them just kind of read through a scene and knew that, you know, I, I had the people that I wanted. So with 10 days notice, uh, Ryan, he auditioned, um, kind of had a um, webcam table read as a type of a callback. And then he showed up completely off book and never even, you know, never even had to go down to the script to, you know, find it. Like I was very impressed with how prepared he showed up for what, what amount of time he, he had worked with for it. So. Yeah. yeah. And for, for those out there listening that are just learning this process or in getting involved in it, off book means, you know, it, you got it down. You don't have to pick the book up again, the script up again to read it, check your place, read your lines and move forward. You got it. It's, it's there. Uh, so that's amazing, actually. Um, especially if that's just uh, in this particular case, that's amazing. Um, did you, <coughs> excuse me, did you, um, in the process of uh, uh, once you got a cast and once you get everything squared away, how long did it take you to shoot it? Uh, so, yeah, so how long it took me to shoot was three weeks. And 
prior to that, from the time the script was finished to the time that I had finished casting, uh, I would say that took maybe one month. Um, That's close to, yeah. So it, it was, well, cause yeah, in 2020, I had that conversation with myself about, you know, working in production. It's mm -hmm. a very hard job. You know, it's, it, it can definitely be rough. You have a lot of peaks and valleys. So are you doing, are you doing what you want, want to be doing? Are you sure? Are you positive? And I kept um, confirming that. So I went out, upgraded my lights, bought the new uh, camera, came up with a script, and immediately went into production with it. So, it, like, I definitely had a driving force to where it was kind of that put up or shut up uh, uh, conversation I had. Um, so that's why the moment that script was done, and it was probably on its fifth draft at that point. But once I knew, okay, this is something we can run with and shoot. Um, yeah. I just didn't waste time on it. Went out, casted, went out and shot. And yeah. Now this is your, your story and you had somebody else write the script, correct? Yes. Uh, uh, so Joey, uh, Sorce, he, uh, he would jump on with me and it's just such a wonderful writing or creative environment to where, um, to, to work with somebody that's creative, but doesn't have an ego. I'm like, mm -hmm. that's completely unheard of. And, um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, except for him to where, um, the way I would give notes and messages, it was completely uh, psychotic and chaotic to look at the way he received information from me. Like, um, if I'm, out and about somewhere, I would just text him and text him like three paragraphs that goes on this page. Or maybe uh, I would actually go into my notes and make at least proper notes, but uh, I'm in notes so I can include a lot of reference photos and pictures and stuff to, you know, uh, to talk about it. And then we would have these uh, uh, phone calls and we would go into a live document and he would see just the the madness on you know on paper about right. like symbolisms and just writing and random notes and then this note turns into dialogue and it goes back to a note and then it has a picture next to it so it's almost like he knows how to read my code Hi hieroglyphics he, <laughs> yeah yeah so he he knows what i'm wanting to say and where and he would really make sense of it and then he um you know what iron out some details and yeah so to me uh, it was a very wonderful experience that's pretty cool actually the uh how'd you come up with the story so the story um back to it i had that put up or shut up mentality and then i told my wife that i'm going off to shoot a movie and she said okay just don't make it about uh covid because that's what every low budget movie is going to be about for the next five years. So I started thinking of, you know, storylines and what should I do and landed on one and said, Hey honey, so I got it. I'm going to make a COVID movie. <laughs> and uh, so I really took that as a challenge. So the challenge started off with, for me, like I love Mel Brooks, Monty Python, you know, very slapstick comedy. And initially I, I started coming up with uh, parody ideas thinking uh and i mentioned it earlier like okay someone's gonna do the haunted house to where you can't stay in the house because it's haunted but you can't leave because of lockdown and oh that's one you know um a horror movie so i began coming up with all of these various ideas about how i would kind of play on them and um um and once i change uh ryan's character uh, his character's name is dan once I changed his character storyline into uh, becoming a pastor, that's when things got serious. Uh, and I did so because I was like, uh, it's kind of a horror comedy. So I need to have somebody get possessed in the movie. Well, how can I justify somebody being possessed? Well, we have to have somebody be religious and, um, you know, that's part of the storyline. But then uh, I actually wove it in that during 2020, a lot of college kids were furious over having to pay that much for tuition. 
but they're not able to get the same amount of schooling because they have to now um, do it at home online. So that's why his character, uh, his character is studying to become a pastor, uh, but he's having to study on online. So that opened the door for me to um, have somebody get uh, possessed. But then also by doing that, that's when, you know, I kind of had, had that flash happen in front of me about what I was really doing. So um, I've conveyed how uncertainty is the common thread and theme in the movie. And now he's studying to become a pastor. And to me, that is really invocative of kind of, you know, postmortem ideologies, you know, what happens to us when we die. And when I began examining and kind of thinking on that, that's when, uh, you know, I flipped the script, so to say, and it went from being a horror comedy to being a lot more serious and with a lot more intent behind it. So when you watch it, I still have dialogue that shakes it up and has like some comedic aspects to it, but it now has much more of a serious tone opposed to it being more comical. And, um, which you have, a, and, we talked about this a little bit earlier. There, there were two, another poster had come up, right? Other than the one that's over yes. your shoulder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and if, if you can, uh, please, yeah. It, uh, if we can make that poster full size, I would love to ex uh, explain why this was the first poster I'd actually come up with. So um, uh, an aspect of this movie or one of the scenes that happen, uh, you have somebody traveling through a tunnel of light and you see the light at the end of the tunnel. And to me, I began thinking, what does that mean? Well, I think nature and nurture really come into play here and different people have a different take on it. So if you're, religious and believe in God, uh, you may think that's um, an interaction with God or, you know, going to heaven or something, you know, in that ballpark. Um, if you're agnostic or spiritual, you may think it's astral projection or an out-of-body experience. And if you're atheist, um, I just kept a more general and connected atheism with the science community and in science, when you have a near-death experience, um, blood begins draining from the brain, uh, preparing the body for death. And when this happens, it's very similar to running a car engine without enough oil. It runs it hard and ragged. And as this is happening, it throws the mind into an altered state of consciousness. And people who have come back from that, they've stated, you know, it felt like they were flying through a tunnel and they saw this bright light. So we, ha we have... You, you know, the belief in God, you're unsure or spiritual. And, um, um, and then you have the absence of God or, you know, being atheists, very different mindsets, all experiencing the exact same thing, yet having completely different outlooks on what that means. So for me, that means we're all the same in the sense that we're all just humans trying to rationalize with what is consciousness, what, you know, what should be, um, and, you know, kind of what's the point of what's going on. So if you look at the movie poster, that was my way to try and make it look kind of intense and, you know, more like a horror movie, but you have Jesus on the cross, but then you all, and that represents the belief in God, but then combined with that, you also have the Vitruvian man, which represents the science-based community. And then if you look at uh, the very center head, uh, you have the third eye open for uh, spirituality. And, um, and then the background you can see is actually the all seeing eye. And there is, um, this is just the what um, portrait style, but if, um, but if we have the reference photo of the actual landscape, you'll see that the uh, clouds around it actually form the shape of, of a human eyeball. So that was my way to say, we're all the same. We experience things, but then we just have a, a different opinion. So can we please get back to having the ability to agree to disagree? And because um, uh, tragically, I think that's um, a skill that we've lost as people. I agree with that. 
anyway, the, the communication, I think we've kind of lost a lot of our art of communication in regard to that aspect, that very aspect. Uh, people forgot how to talk to each other, at least in a civil manner, and understand that we all have opinions, we all have our own thoughts and so forth, and, and that each one of us should respect the the fact that we all have our individual thoughts. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Uh, I like the, the new poster that you have. I think that uh, really conveys the essence of the movie very well. Uh, not that the first, the one that we just talked about wouldn't have, but this one I think kind of allows us the opportunity to say, oh, the new awakening, to me, it's, it's I'm not going to give the movie away. I want everybody to go see it, of course, but it, you know, it opens up an opportunity for what kind of an awakening is she having? Definitely, and yeah, and on that note, the when you watch the movie, you do have a couple subtleties that you know kind of tell you what um, what is happening during this great awakening, um, but it's still left you know a little open ended because back to uncertainty. I want people to watch this and understanding um, one character believes in God. One doesn't believe in God. One is a little unsure about, you know, what's, uh, what's happening. And those are characters on screen. So I actually want people to watch the movie and then give me feedback on what they like, what they didn't, what they agreed with mm -hmm. and kind of what the ending means to them. Um, that's a very intentional thing. So instead of just, completely hammering it down saying this is what happened um i chose to make that a lot more subtle so as you watch it there's still room for interpretation on 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 actually a lot of things well you can draw the audience in and give them the opportunity to kind of uh, connect and engage with that mm -hmm. let's tell people how to find it so you can find the great awakening uh on 2b tv it, it came out couple weeks ago on it and um yeah if you just go on tv tv it is free to download it's free to watch uh you have a couple commercial breaks but other than that um yeah it's true true to form uh free tv yeah absolutely it's, it's free to sign up it, you can do it through uh you have a kindle not a kindle i always call it a kindle app a fire stick oh, the, can, uh, uh, yeah mm -hmm. yeah i constantly call it a kindle my boss no it's not a kindle it's a fire stick <laughs> Uh, yeah, you can find it on a Fire Stick, or you can find it on a standalone app in itself. But again, it's free, and it's uh, yeah, it's a very good, uh, brilliant movie. I really appreciate the fact that uh, you brought that up to us for able to be able to enjoy. Um, a couple of last things. Uh, this is one more thing before you go. So before we go, do you have any words of wisdom for any aspiring actor or model or filmmaker in particular that uh, you'd like to share with us? Sure. Um, words of wisdom. Um, if somebody's trying to break into it, um, hopefully you didn't skip ahead and, you know, miss the part of me talking about how I got into it. But essentially, you just have to start. Um, when you look at, you know, the very first project that all of these, you know, times of industry, look at their very first thing that they had done. You know, um, it's it's a lot more indie feeling than what a lot of people, you know, actually realize. So for me, I, I had a camera. I didn't, I did not have a light. I did not have a microphone. Um, I didn't have anything, but I just went out and shot it. And the next one, I got a tiny bit better, tiny bit better. And as long as you keep shooting with the intention of increasing uh, quality and yeah, you will be, just completely blown away at, at what can happen. So for me, you know, in five years, I went from uh, from starting with a short film such as that, uh, you know, taking, uh, I didn't have the, the amount of cast I wanted. So the bad guys were teddy bears that, you know, like we would put right next to the camera. So all of a sudden they seem life size. <laughs> so that those were the bad guys in my very first project um, to, to save a cabbage patch kid from the elf on the shelf. So I started with that. Um, and mm -hmm. now, you know, yeah. And, and now um, my first movie just got distribution. Uh, so that's kind of the inspirational side of things on the practical side of things uh, for filmmaking. If you're going to, you know, actually go in and 
shoot something that you plan on uh, receiving income from, you know, so if you're shooting a short film, just do it. However, but please, if, if you're shooting something with the intention of getting distribution, I, I don't care what, what kind of lens you want, what camera you want to rent. If you do not have a proper sound person on set, none of this fixing it in post and, you know, ha having, you know, audio technicians. No, you have to have somebody in the sound department recording sound on set. If, if you're not willing to invest in that, then you're, you're going to have a very hard time with your movie. Brilliant words of wisdom and 100% agree with you in that regard. It goes the same thing for podcasting or any kind of audio that you put out. It needs to be pristine. So excellent words yeah. of wisdom. Thank you. Bo, thank you very much for joining me on the program. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for uh, your film. Thank you for uh, helping people to learn and to be motivated and inspired to go out and make their own film. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Michael. It was, uh, yeah, it was chill. That's, really that's the way they should be. Being here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hopefully we can have another conversation down the road after your next project. Awesome. Let's do it. That'd be great. One more thing before you go. Check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. One more thing before you go. Established 2010. All rights reserved.